Hello, everybody. Welcome again, once again, to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host. I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Check out our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Be sure to subscribe to us through some of your favorite networks, including Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Facebook, YouTube, and more. We have over 280 episodes available to you right now covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to business creators just like you, and we are so excited to have you here when we explore why it is that you don't know what you don't know. One of my favorite phrases, you don't know what you don't know. And we're going to take that phrase and we are going to apply it to the process of buying, growing, and eventually selling a business. Saleability is a huge issue. And a lot of our business creators have challenges when it comes to saleability, especially when their business is still in kind of a solopreneurial place or it's a consulting type business that depends so much on the business creator themselves, and it either has not evolved to the point where it can be leveraged, or that same business creator will find themselves deciding that they want to have a multiple stream of income that would be a saleable asset. That's where today's topic comes in. To share with us today on what you don't know, or excuse me, on how you don't know what you don't know when it comes to these things, is a gentleman named Terry Lammers. He's a certified valuation analyst, and he's the co-founder and managing member of Innovative Business Advisors. He just came out with a new book. It's called You Don't Know What You Don't Know. It's an in-depth examination of the process of buying, growing, and eventually selling a business. And with Terry's guidance, both the current and aspiring business owners are sure to walk away with a wealth of knowledge and advice to lead them down the path to business success in every stage. So if you are here because you are looking to build a saleable asset and you're looking to buy, grow, and eventually sell a business, whatever path you're taking, this is the place you want to be today. So Terry Lammers, why don't you just come on in? The weather's fine. Hey, Adam. How you doing? Thanks for having me. I appreciate being on the show and, and appreciate your all your listeners out there, uh, I guess you can't say viewing in, but listening in today. <laughs> Well, absolutely. Here's, here's what we like to do. Before we get started, I know you have a ton of information you want to share with us today, is we'd like to take a quick step back. I think there may be some folks out there who may be looking up Terry Lammers in a separate browser tab on their favorite browser. They may be looking for this book called You Don't Know What You Don't Know. So let's help them out. Just tell us a little bit about your journey, Terry, and what's brought you to where you are today serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Sure. Grew up in a little town of Pierron, Illinois, which is about 30 miles straight east of St. Louis. Uh, raised in a family oil company, so we delivered gasoline, diesel fuel, lubricants to farmers, excavators, trucking companies, manufacturing, stuff like that. So uh, grew up in the business, um, left for a while to do um, some other things outside of the company, mainly kind of funny. I worked in banking, and later on I found myself back in banking, but came back to the company in 1991. Um, at that time, things weren't the greatest. It was just my mom and dad and myself, and I jokingly tell people we had two trucks, and it was a, a good day if they both started. 
So um, kind of took over the business in 1992, uh, started my company, Tri-County Petroleum. Uh, We had the opportunity to buy another company, which I knew if we'd get that done, uh, would put us back in, you know, in a profitable state. So um, I bought Bone Oil Company in 1992 and over the course of the next 20 years had the opportunity to buy 11 other companies and and that was the main way for our growth was through acquisition, but grew the company from $750,000 in sales our first year to um, over $42 million by 2010 when I sold the company. Um, Growmark, which is a, about a $6 billion agronomy company based out of Bloomington, Illinois, uh, bought my company. I was one of their largest competitors in southern Illinois. So uh, Growmark bought my lubricants business. And uh, eight of their FS member companies bought the fuel side of things. So I worked for them for six six months. And um, after that, I found myself um, retired. And uh, after sitting home for three months, watching the Today Show in the morning and the Price is Right at noon and Oprah in the afternoon, my wife uh, came to the conclusion that I needed to get a job. So I always joke uh-huh. and say that apparently our home is a marital asset that I'm not allowed to be at during the day. <laughs> so I, I started working for a large commercial bank doing banking, which kind of fit. I was uh, always kind of a finance person. So um, after about three and a half years of that, I kind of got my entrepreneurial itch back. And in uh, July of 2014, we started Innovative Business Advisors. And I also got my CBA designation, a certified valuation analyst. So back CBAs value businesses. So um, Innovative does three things. We help people buy and sell companies. Um, being a CBA, we do a lot of business valuations. And uh, we also use uh, do some consulting using the value builder system. And uh, and the book has been out about a year. So that was always about a, always a bucket list item. And uh, it's getting great reviews. And, and I hope it's helpful to everybody. Wow. See, what I love about these stories is we get to – explore more about our guests and understand the passion, the brilliance, and the inspiration for what brings them to share what they're sharing. And within Terry's story, we hear about businesses being sold. We hear about his own evolution and what inspired him to take this new path. And personally, I think The Price is Right is a great show, but how many times can you watch it? (laughs) Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. You know, everybody says, oh, I'm going to retire. I'm going to, you know, I love hunting, uh, fishing, and golfing, but, um, you know, I don't know. I can only do so much of it. And, you know, really the biggest thing for me now, I'd tell you that I'm going to work the rest of my life, but it's really about having control of my time. You know, if I want to go hunting on the weekend or take off Thursday afternoon and hunt the weekend, that's that's what I'm going to do. So, um, you know, for, for me... That's I'm as busy as ever, but I love it, and then it is about my time. If I want to go do something, we'll go do something. Exactly. All right, so uh, let's dive right in here, Terry, and we're going to take this in a certain order. I know you have a lot of information you want to share with us over the next uh, 50 minutes or so. we got a lot of time here, which is great, and... The first thing we want to do is we want to start laying some groundwork for how to view our business and how to view our cash flow. So why do you recommend to business creators focus on gross profit and cash flow rather than sales and net income? That's a great question, Adam. Um, I think, you know, people are taught in school uh, sales and net income. 
And I want to tell your listeners right now, it's not about sales and net income. It's about gross profit and cash flow. Um, when I own the oil company, you, you know, you get this dirty little thing on your income statement called depreciation. And it's like, you know, if I didn't have that, I might be profitable. Um, but keep in mind that depreciation, and this is something I learned once I started the banking. So it was really neat to kind of jump to the other side of the fence. Uh, depreciation is a non-cash expense. You add that back to net income. And um, when you're going to get a loan, you'll add back the interest also. You, and you want to get to the true cash flow of the bank of your company, and that's exactly what um, that's exactly what your banker is doing when he's looking at it. And you, it's also very advisable to create a debt schedule where you've got all your debts listed out and what your payments are, you know, in the balance, uh, and you can kind of come up with your own debt coverage ratio uh, to tell you how bankable you are to the bank. But you know, on the top side of your income statement on sales versus gross profit, I hear people tell me all the time, I increased my sales by half a million dollars last year. Well, if you have a cost of goods sold section, you know, and then that you, you come down to a gross profit, it doesn't mean anything if you raised your sales by 500000 but your gross profit gross profit of the company didn't go up also, you know, so you just sold more stuff for less and um, it's not getting you anywhere. Right. True. And so I think, I think, go ahead. I was going to say, and then on the growth of the company, um, one thing that was was very successful for us was growth through acquisition. Um, It not only helps you grow geographically, but can also um, expand the number of products that you could sell, um, and, and once you start getting to a certain size, then you don't need to be working in the company as much. You can be working on the company. And, you know, by the time I right. sold Track County Petroleum, uh, that's the way it was. I had three operations managers and an office manager, and, and uh, they could pretty much run the show. And uh, that also makes your company much more sellable, that somebody can come in and, you know, if the owner is out the door, the company's still going to be there and function. Right, exactly. And as I mentioned in my introduction, that's one of the big barriers to saleability. And why I think this interview is so timely is I'm hearing more and more from business creators that just they just can't get saleability into their existing business. So they have decided that rather than even try and fight that battle or scale something that really can't or shouldn't be scaled or they just don't want to scale is either start or acquire another stream of income or another business. And when I saw what's inside, what you don't know, what you don't know, the title of your book, I thought this is great. So let's get into one of the ways we solve that, which is acquisitions, acquiring a business. So how do you use acquisitions to fuel your business growth? You're basically buying somebody else's cash flow. Uh, So Somebody might ask, well, how do I know that the company's for sale? You know, it's really a mindset that you just got to get over. Every business owner um, has it in their head that one day they want to exit. And I called, when I had the oil company, I called it planting the seed. A lot of times I would go talk to a competitor and just drop in and introduce yourself. Have you shook, have you shook your competitor's hand? Does he even know you? You know, so stop by. I just introduce myself and say, you know, hey, if I can ever help you out or we can ever work together. That's great, and it's as long as it needs to be, and you planted that seed. And you'll probably get a reaction of, yeah, okay, thanks for stopping by. Well, it's nice to meet you, and that'll be about it. One year later, you stop by again. Now he knows your face. 
maybe get a little bit more to chat about. You kind of end again with, hey, if we could ever work together, that would be great. And uh, then you get the, thanks for stopping by, Carrie. Good to see you again. You know, yada, yada, yada. And by the third time, next thing you know, you're getting a phone call and, and a person will say, hey, why don't you stop by? I need to talk to you. And, you know, they very well may be looking to exit. Yeah, and, and see, this is where I urge all business creators to get beyond the idea that the competition is the enemy. Actually, your competition can be some of your greatest alliance or ally partners when it comes to being in business. Uh, sure. Many different reasons. One of the reasons you just shared, another is maybe you have a prospect that you can't serve. Maybe your dance card is full. Maybe this prospect you have looks good on paper, but you just got a feeling. Or maybe they don't fit the type of customer that you ideally serve, but you happen to know your competitor over there does things just a little bit differently, and you think that'd be a match made in heaven. So send them over. Why not? That's a, I, I mean, yeah, that's a perfect yeah. that's a perfect analogy, Adam. Um, one of the things and, that and, and, and let me just, me and, let me, and Terry, let me, Terry, let me throw in one more. I'm just so passionate about this. Uh, believe me, by the end of this interview, you, I'm not going to have a word to say. I just got to say one thing, uh, and I want people to think about this. I don't want to lose this. Let's say you're having a challenge in your business you're trying to solve, and you need to bend somebody's ear. Who knows your business better than you? Who knows your industry better than you? Who knows your challenge better than you? Why not? Why not? And why not be a resource to them as well? People too often don't think about this stuff and how willing your competition would be willing to would be to help you for two reasons because they may at some point be looking to sell out so they want to they want to have a good relationship with you to attract you as a potential buyer for their company or maybe they have in mind maybe they're going to buy you one day so and you might be in a position where you might want to sell one day so why not have a relationship already in place so that you're familiar with each other you know how you you work and if there's an acquisition that comes up in the future, there's already a basis for getting that transition started. I apologize, and I appreciate that. And uh, now, go for it. <laughs> yeah, it is. You know, you can just go on and on, and I, and I love talking about it. You know, um, I write about in the book a situation where, you know, when you buy you, you when you buy a competitor – you know some of his customers, but you don't know all the customers. And some of the customers that they may have, you didn't even know that they had, and they're very good customers. Um, I bought a company in Wood River, Illinois, and um, one of their customers was the Wood River Refining Facility, uh, which is a huge, it's owned by ConocoPhillips. It's a huge refinery. And who would have thought that a refinery would need somebody to deliver fuel to them? But they have to buy their on-road fuel from a licensed distributor. So, one, I didn't even know that could be a customer. Two, I surely didn't know that they used that they used a ton of fuel. Um, and if I was going to call on them, you can't even get in the place because you got to have a pass to get through the gate. And in reality, the person you needed to talk to was in Houston, wasn't in Wood River. So you know, it's a it's a great way to um, you know build your company, uh, get new customers, grow product lines. Um, I just that was really the secret to my success. 
and it's not as hard as you think. And after, you know, once you do it a couple of times, and you know, that one of the tough things about our business was we didn't have contracts with our customers. They just free to go wherever they want. And that's a little bit risky when you're buying a company that doesn't, you know, have customers that are contractually held to buy from you. But one of the things that we discovered after doing it several times is that, you you know, there's typically that 80-20 situation where, 80% of your gross profit comes from 20% of your customers. So if you can keep the acquisition, you know, quiet, um, confidential until the day it happens, and then have the owner go around with you to those 20% of the customers, uh, typically we was able to keep 90, you know, at least 90 and typically 95% of the customers uh, from the company that we acquired. Um, because mainly you're going to have that trusted owner going around with you and saying, hey, I, to- I chose to sell my business to this person, so give him a chance. And if you get that, if you get that, that's golden. You know, most of those customers are going to stay with you. You know, you said something interesting. Uh, a refinery needed to buy oil for, or I believe you said fuel for its trucks because they had to buy, uh, I think you said certified from a certified dealer or something like that. No, a licensed dealer. So, you know, if you're a whatever state dealer. you're in, you have a motor fuel license to sell fuel in that state. So their off-road fuel, I say they can get out of the proverbial spigot. You know, they make it, but what goes in their trucks and cars and stuff like that, they have to buy from a licensed distributor. And we happen to be right across the road from the refinery, and, you know, that that, that company serviced that refinery for years and years and years. And when we bought the company, they stuck with us, and uh, it was a great relationship. I'd just like to point something out. Uh, you know how many web design firms and digital marketing firms hire some other company, sometimes even their competitor, to manage their websites? The reason being is their brilliance and passion is doing that for other people. When it comes to doing it for themselves, they live within their own blind spot, and for them to do it for themselves is actually a deficit on their own productivity and ability to deliver. It's actually more economical, more efficient, and more powerful for their business to have a third party handle it for them. So think about all those places where you could potentially be a resource to your competitors by providing to them the things that they do for themselves because it makes more sense for them to outsource it for their own needs. Yes, and even as you're growing. So uh, this same company was really a, a strategic acquisition for us because um, my company, we sold more diesel fuel than we did bulk lubricants. Uh, we bought this company. They sold more bulk lubricants than they did diesel fuel. So they had a great bulk oil facility, which I desperately needed because I was my bulk oil facility was actually being operated out of a, a calf shed that I used when I was a kid to raise cows. And we was severely outgrowing it. So by buying this company, you know, pretty much what I paid for it, I would have spent in building a bulk storage facility for lubricants, and he already had it. So, you know, I bought that company, his customers, and that facility, and uh, overall, that was a very good value and uh, was able to expand my bulk lubricant sales immensely because of it. Right, precisely. So, yeah, Yeah. I mean... It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It just start got starting acquisitions. Now we're talking about cooperation. It's beautiful. Yeah, and one more thing to add to it, and I think you kind of touched on it with your comments. You know, what about what about those employees? 
in today's world, you know, I don't care what industry you're looking at, you talk to business owners, or I do all the time, and they can't find qualified employees. Well, guess what else came with that company or the other companies that I bought? They're employees. And oftentimes, those employees have great relationships with the customers, and it just makes that acquisition that more sticky to keeping those customers around. Wow, that is that is really powerful. Yeah. So, yeah, well, if you're acquiring a company rather than build a company, you don't have to build it. It's already there. Right. Um, you know, another thing that was interesting, you know, by the time, you know, you're getting into the, you know, past 2000, 2005, we was getting to be a pretty big company. But no matter what company we bought, we always learned something. So no matter how good you think you are or how big you are, you know, even that little guy probably got some pretty good ideas that, you know, it's kind of like that you didn't know what you didn't know, right? Um, there was a lot of aha moments. It was like, ah, oh, that's pretty slick. <laughs> and you can incorporate. Now you're not, a, you know, you're buying this little company, but you're incorporating that great idea into your big company. And it, and it can really have an impact right. on the whole organization. Yeah. I mean, these are some great things to to think about that make the idea of, acquiring a company so powerful and i have a two questions about that actually one question and one observation let's get the observation out of the way quickly and i learned this a while ago is if you're building a company with the idea that you expect it to be acquired one of the best practices out there that i've seen is to study companies who you would like to acquire you and align your business processes with their processes so let's say for example you're doing drop shipping of instant meals so you're forming this company that does drop shipping, shipping of instant meals. I'm just going to say, for instance, let's say you're going to do vegan meals. And you want to be acquired by one of the big players at some point. So what you do is you find out how the big players operate. What machinery do they use? Uh, what outsourcing companies do they use? What shipping company do they use? What company do they use for the boxes, for the packing, for the ice? All of it. Uh, what merchant accounts do they use? And the reason you do that is because one of these big companies decides that they want to go into the vegan business because they currently don't have a vegan line, but they want to respond to popular demand. And they decide that rather than build a vegan division, let's just buy a vegan company. If your company already is using all the same systems that they are using, how easy is, is it for them to call their reps at all those companies and say, we're acquiring this company. Uh, is there any chance you could just merge the accounts? or knowing they could seamlessly integrate your plant into their plant. So that's just an observation I've discovered. And a question I have is, if you are looking to acquire a company, does it have to be perfect? I mean, what if you know that the company you're acquiring isn't exactly the most profitable in the world, or it has some need for organizational development, or it needs some new machinery or something? Should you still buy it? That's a great question, Adam, and I'm glad you brought that up because it is very important. Um, there's some tremendous opportunities out there to buy struggling companies. So uh, one of the things I want to make sure your listeners are thinking about, when you buy a company, what do we talk about the very first thing of the call? It's not about sales and net income. It's about gross profit and cash flow. When you're buying that company, right. you're you're buying that gross profit. So even if your cost of goods sold section is going to be the same, I bet you your operating expenses are going to be completely different. So when I was buying a company, and me and my accountant always butted heads off at about this, 
typically when you're buying account a company, you're paying a multiple of their cash flow. That cash flow may look completely different under you. So um, one of the things, you know, when I would when I would look at a company that I was acquiring, I could go through their operating expenses and. I don't need their insurance. I already have insurance. I don't need their marketing. I already do marketing. You know, maybe I don't need their their fuel truck because I already have a truck running in the same area. So I may be able to slice as much as 40% of their operating expenses, you know, off when I acquire it. So what I'm really looking at is what's the gross profit of that company, and then I'm going to make a pro forma on what my operating expenses are going to be underneath that. So they may be losing money because they got a lot of debt or, um, you know, their, their business has just gone down to where their operating expenses are more than the gross profit they can generate. But you may be able to uh, buy that gross profit, buy that company, gain that gross profit, trim those operating expenses, and that same company could be very profitable for you. And to take it one step further, and this was the case for me, especially with lubricants, we bought in bulk. If you know, so I got pricing that was much better than most of the people that I was buying. So now, not only am I buying their gross profit, but I'm replacing their, you know, and their cost of goods sold section that the things I'm buying to sell are much cheaper. So I might be able to generate 20 to 30 percent more gross profit from that business than what the company I was acquiring. All and right. that's where you can really pick up some bargains. So another Absolutely. example, if you want, real quick. Uh, yeah, I ahead. bought two companies that were go- that were going out of business. Uh, the quickest company I ever bought was in three days. I found out about it on a Wednesday, and we closed on Friday. I got, my mom was still working for me at the time, believe it or not, and uh, somebody called and said they needed fuels, a new customer, and she had the presence of mind to ask why they called us. And the person said, "Well, my guy's going out of business on Friday." So I got back to the office. I called that company. Uh, the owner had died. Um, it was a, a nephew that was running it just until they could get it closed. And it was Wednesday, and he said, I'm closing the doors on Friday. And he said, I asked him, I said, well, what are you doing with your customers? He said, I'm telling them to go someplace else. And he said, hold the phone. I'll be right there. So in a couple of days, we made an agreement with them that I gave them 25% of the gross profit of any account that we kept for one year. And at the end of the day, they got a pretty healthy check for something that they was going to close down you know, a couple of days later. And it was a great way for us to pick up business at, you know, a very cheap price. And we got some great commercial accounts out of it. Sounds like it. Was there any money down or any money up front or was it just simply an agreement that they would get 25% of the, of the gross of the, of the customers you kept for the first year? That was it. No bank, um, no down payment. Um, I think we made. I think we did buy some of their equipment. So I mean, that may have been a small payment um, right. later on. But it was, you know, they had a, they had a good attorney that you know didn't complicate things, and uh, we was able to write something up really quick. We put them all those customers into our, uh, you know, accounting or petroleum software system. Basically, we set those customers up as a new salesman in our system, and at the end of the month, we printed a report. It showed, you know, what customer and what the gross profit was, and we wrote them a check for 25% of that. It was slick. Did it with another company that was further away. It was outside of our geographical area, and this was a very rural company also. Um, And back before the days of 911 addresses, so, you know, you get this rural route to the address. Like, I don't know where this guy's at. So um, the owner actually stayed with me, 
and uh, his equipment was shot. So we gave him a new truck, and and um, all the customers that we kept of his, which was virtually 100% of them, we gave him 10, 25% of the gross profit for the first year. And uh, where he was about to go out of business, now he has a, a guarantee that he was getting paid more from me than he was getting than he was paying himself. And you know, he's still basically running the same routes that he was doing before, and he, he got paid some money for his business. See, that's that's so a you, pretty good deal. And yeah, you just got to be creative. I mean, there's more than one way to skin yeah. a cat, right? Yeah, as, as the old saying goes. Yeah, and what I love about that is it shows that you don't have to make your business perfect. You don't have to make it super profitable or have all your uh, I's dotted or T's crossed in order to sell your business. And that's going to lead into our next question here because I think we're going to jump ahead here a little bit based on where we're going is, uh, you know, I really – I just want people to be impressed upon that, that your stuff doesn't necessarily need to be perfect. In fact, you know, think of it this way. How many people buy a house? that they know is kind of a fixer-upper because they have their own vision of what the house is going to be like, and it's easier to take an existing structure and remodel it than to start from scratch. So they don't care that your linoleum is a little peeled or the thing is 10 years past wanting a coat of paint because they were going to paint it and refloor it anyway. So think of it that way. Maybe your business is a good structure foundation for something that they were going to re-carpet and refresh it anyway. Why not? So with all that in mind, with all that in mind, let's say that, you know, as we move from acquisitions to sales, what besides anything we've already covered in this call can we do to strategically position a company that you own for sale? That's another good question. Um, first and foremost, I would start with the financial statements. You have to have up-to-date financial statements. Um, there's nothing more frustrating than going to, you know, look at a company and, you know, say it's June, and they don't have any financial statements for the current year yet. You should, you know, you should at least have first quarter statements done by then. Another thing that I would tell you is get your taxes done on time. I run into so many people that they kind of stick their chest out and they're proud. It's like, I filed an extension. Well, if you're trying to sell your business, get your taxes done. Have your financial information up to date, and, you know, if it's not, it's just a big red flag. Um you know, to your prior comment, your company doesn't have to be perfect, but one thing I would caution your listeners on is you can't sell a company for something that the next person can make it. So your company doesn't have to be perfect, but you're not going to get top dollar for it. So if you know your company's not perfect and you still got a couple of years, you know, left in you, hire a coach or somebody that can help you make that thing look like a shiny new dime. Um, I run into too many right. business owners that they took their foot off the pedal three years before they sold the company, and they, they lost a ton of value to the company. Um, but back to your question, what can you do to make it sellable? So we talked about financial statements. You know, have your if you have rolling stock like we did, you know, I, I had everything for every truck in a three-ring binder from the time we purchased it to the, to the copy of the title, um, any major repairs that were done on it. Um, if you have equipment loaned out like we did, you know, we had signed lease agreements on everything. Um, so I was a pretty sophisticated buyer or, or when I sold my company, I was a pretty sophisticated seller from the fact that I bought so many companies. When From the day we signed our letter of intent until the day we closed was six weeks. And for a pretty big company, that 
that's incredible. That just doesn't happen. But if you've got your ducks in a row and you know where everything's at, you know, you can make that process uh, easier. And the easier it is, the more you're going to get paid for your company. Right. Right. I think I think these are all good things to bear in mind. Now, going along with that, being along with that, what do you need to have in place to sell your company? And I think we might have touched on a couple of those things already, but let's say you are getting ready to sell. What needs to be lined up for a buyer to come in and uh, acquire you? Um, you know, that's where all of these things, you know, like uh, if you're not, we call it with the values builder system, the hub and the spoke. If you're the owner yeah. and you don't have a management team, you know, so you're the hub and the spokes are all your customers and your employees and your suppliers, you know, if they all come to you, that's a problem. Because if you're not there, who's going to run the ship? So start to pull yourself away from the company a little bit and have people in place to to sell it. Um, another thing is the working capital that it takes to, to run the company. So when you go to buy a company, you're in essence writing two checks. You're writing one check for the value of the company, and you're writing another check or you're going to absorb the working capital of that company. So if they have a half million dollars, you know, so let's just assume you're the seller. I'm going to sell the company and I'm going to get my check. And then typically in, an asset, in a typical asset purchase, you're going to keep your cash, you're going to collect your accounts receivable, and you're going to get paid cost for your inventory that's still, you know, good inventory. So that's, that's that working capital. When you're the buyer – you know, you're going to pay for the company, but then you're going to have the cash and the money to, be, to pay for the inventory and be able to absorb that accounts receivable. So as the seller, you need to clean up clean up your accounts receivable. One thing that's really difficult is, you know, you buy a company and the previous owners let those customers pay in 120 days and you're strict at 30 days. You're probably going to lose those those customers because they're not going to like that you're reining them in to pay in 30 days. So right. that's you know that's another good one uh, to have lined up and 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 just so that you can find the stuff you know have an asset list uh, and often that's very different from what's on the balance sheet. Uh, I always encourage my coaching clients to create a balance sheet at market value. Um, that land you bought 20 years ago might be worth a lot more than what's on the balance sheet. Um, a good place to start as far as an equipment list is your depreciation schedule. And if you've got old equipment sitting around that's not being used anymore, get rid of it. Um, typically, when we value a company, we're valuing the cash flow. And whatever assets are used to generate that cash flow typically go with the company. So if you've got something that you're not using, it's not creating cash flow, get rid of it and get it off, the, get it off that equipment list. That makes true, sense. True, true. Makes dollars and cents, literally. So, uh, and that is one thing that we struggle with as a valuation all the time. So, uh, in valuing a company and getting to that cash flow, here's something for your listeners to think about. You've purchased assets to generate cash flow. That cash flow has a value. If the value of that cash flow is greater than the market value of the assets, you have goodwill in the company. If the value of that cash flow is less than the market value of the assets that created it, there's really no value to the business and you just have an asset sale. Yeah. I want to make sure you understand that because that's really a key um, to what you got. 
I think I, I think I got it. Uh, I mean, these are a lot of important things. So I encourage everybody to go back and subscribe to us so that you can download this episode and listen to it again. Very, very important. So, uh, so one other question. Yeah, man, I tell you, the thing I love about you is there's always one more thing. Go for it, man. <laughs> one more thing. Uh, another thing that I would encourage all business owners to do, whether you're going to – whether you plan on exiting in the next month or 10 years, have somebody value your company so that you have – a very realistic idea of what the company is worth. You know, not something that you heard from your cousin, you know, your cousin Bob's friend's neighbor. Uh, have it professionally valued so that you, you have a reasonable expectation of what you're going to get when you sell that company. Um, the biggest deal killer of any business sale is an owner that thinks the company's worth three million and it's really only worth a million. And you need to, and then build your team. You know, uh, I talk about that in the book a lot. You know, who's your attorney? Is he a business attorney? Use a business attorney that has done acquisitions before. Um, too many people I see want to use an acquisition, uh, an estate attorney or a litigation attorney. God forbid, don't use a litigation attorney. All they want to do is fight. Uh, you know, so put that team in place. And if you are planning on the, the sale of your business for your retirement, gosh, this just double important to have it valued and so that you can tell your financial advisor, you know, a true value of what your company's worth and what taxes you're going to have to pay when you sell it so that he can so that he can accurately put together a retirement plan for you. Right. Okay, is there one more thing or can we move on? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. Go. <laughs> okay, a um, couple uh, other questions have come up here and these get to be a little bit more in a little bit more of a technical nature, and they do speak up to what some of the concerns people have when it comes to either acquiring or selling a company. So let's start internally and ask: How do you? Let's say you're going to sell your company. How do you tell your employees that you're pl you're planning to sell the company? Mm, that's a tough one, and there's no right or wrong answer. Um, so I'll just speak personally. Uh, I kept it quiet for a long time, and I had a regular monthly um, meeting with my operations managers and stuff like that. And uh, we was meeting for the regular meeting, and they all came in. You know, they, as they came to the meeting, they noticed my one my wife was there, and she's never there, so that was kind of a red flag. And typically, we would have financial statements to go over and stuff like that, and there was nothing on the table. And uh, so I told my management team first. Um, it was very unexpected because uh, I was fairly young yet. And, you know, from there it started getting out to the employees. And uh, and there, you know, the cat's out of the bag. So probably, you know, probably the most important, you know, if, if, so if you're 75, they ought to, you know, and, and you should have retired 10 years ago, the employees ought to expect it. Maybe they'll be happy. Maybe they're going to be happy to get a new owner, you know, uh, get some things changed around here and up to date. But for the most part, the one thing I would caution is make sure you have a deal in hand. Don't go, you know, running around telling the employees or suppliers before you got, you know, at least a letter of intent solidly in place. Or the main thing is maybe, you know, the guy you're talking to about selling the company, you guys are all 100% in agreement, but uh-oh, what if he can't get financed? So that's where that's where it can get ugly, where you tell people you're selling your company and then it falls through. So make sure you got... Make sure you got a deal in place. 
then from there, you know, another quick story that I'd, if you have if you have key employees and you don't have them nailed down with some golden handcuffs or a non-compete, you may want to have a conversation with them, with them ahead of time. Um, we sold a company a year ago that, you know, we got all the way to two weeks before closing and we had to tell the employees, and if these two guys didn't stay, um, the buyer wasn't going to buy. So it went through. It uh, wasn't perfect. There were some hard feelings and some tears, and, you know, one of them thought he should have had first chance to buy it. Um, so every situation is different, and, and you that's something you really got to be careful with. Yeah. Um, I guess I guess one of the things that I, that I wouldn't recommend is uh, – just disappear in the middle of the night and let your people find out the next morning they have a new owner? <laughs> uh, no, but uh, that being said, um, I have bought companies. Uh, the last company I bought uh, wasn't an oil company. It was a property management company. And we did talk to one of the key employees before it happened, but none of the other none of the other company, or companies, none of the other employees knew about it until we actually signed a purchase agreement. It was a done deal. And uh, they called them all in the in the conference room, and um, but these were pretty much office employees, so it's not like they're going out to customers. Um, so yeah, they didn't find out about it until until it was a done deal. Wow. So, uh, yeah. So here's um, a great phrase that I use many many times when you're going through this: Tell your employees, keep an open mind. Just keep an open mind. It'll be all right. Nobody likes changes. You know, there's going to be, and inevitably there's going to be some changes, but just keep an open mind to the process. Uh, the change isn't always bad. Uh-huh. Okay, so here's another question that has come up is uh, one of the concerns people have with buying and selling businesses is the involvement of Uncle Sam. So what needs to be in place to have the best chances of avoiding a real nasty tax hit as a result of a business sale? Yeah. So in my book, I talk about things that I did right and things that I should have done differently. And this is definitely something I should have done differently. I didn't I my accountant was a large customer of mine, so I didn't tell him. I really didn't seek out the advice of a financial advisor. But that's bad. Um those are two very important people that you need to have on your team. And even for a relatively small company, you can get pretty creative on how you structure the sale of the company to avoid as many taxes as possible. Um, we actually had a company, a trucking company that we were selling here about a couple of years ago, and it was my bad. I didn't realize the company was a C-Corp. And the way we had the purchase agreement laid out, they was literally going to have to bring a check to the table to sell their company because there was such a tax hit. But we was able to, this was a smaller trucking company, we was able to restructure that purchase agreement where the owners, there was two owners, the owners went from where they was going to bring a, have to bring a check to the closing table to where they each walked away with about $100,000. Um, you know, there's Florida is a state that doesn't pay incomes, income tax, or, you know, I think they don't pay income tax, you know, personal income tax. So um, Illinois is a horrible state for that. So it may make sense for you to claim your residency in another state before you sell your company and to save a big chunk. But, you know, the best advice I can give is make sure you're, when you're going through this that you get in touch with your financial advisor and your CPA to help you through this. Right. 
Very true. So uh, here's another question that arises is, what are the drawbacks of not having a non-compete clause? With your employees or with the seller? With the seller or the acquirer, what have you. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, the acquirer. Berkshire, you're right. Um, yeah. The drawbacks? I mean, geez, the biggest drawback is mm-hmm. they could go start a business tomorrow across the street and run you out of business. And believe it or not, that happens. Um, you know, typically – uh, state laws won't let you put in an overly long non-compete. Um, I was agreeable to Growmark giving me a seven-year non-compete. That's very unusual. I would say the norm is three to five years. Um, you just have to be smart about it, too. I mean, you know, I've bought companies where the guy's definitely retired. I mean, you're not going to have to worry about him starting up another company. But what if something happens while you're selling the company and you make him angry at you. Maybe you change something and, by God, he did it that way for the last 20 years and here you come in you think you're going to change everything that I've been doing and, and he gets mad and he wants to go sit down with one of your competitors and tell where his customers are at. So, you know, even though that person may be going away into retirement, he's still got knowledge in his head. So you need to have them tied down with a non-compete. Right. So what are some good terms for a non-compete? Because I know that there's a, a fear that some people have. Uh, if I sign a non-compete, then I'm, I could potentially self be opening myself never being able to be in business again because somebody's holding this non-compete over my head. And if I so much as sneeze, they could interpret that as, uh, as competition. I've really never run into that problem before. You know, I've had people okay. – that wanted to sell trucking companies in, say, Illinois, but they wanted to um, move to Texas and start a different company. Um, the courts aren't going to let you, aren't going to let the buyer put such a strong non-compete in there that that can happen. They can't keep you from having a, being able to earn income. So, uh, most of the time, you're going to see a couple of things. One, the time limit, three to five years. Two, it's only going to cover a certain geographical area. Now, you know, if you've got a company that's nationwide, that might be a little bit different, but that's probably not the norm for your listeners. So, you know, even with my company, it, it expanded, say, like 100 miles from um, my main office, which easily covered all of my customers. Uh, maybe maybe you operate in a single town, so you say a 25-mile radius. Um, there has to be reasonable expectations in that non-compete. And the other thing I would tell you, you as the seller, you should be willing to sign a non-compete. If I'm the buyer and you're not willing to sign a non-compete, why the heck do I want to buy your company for the fear that you could go across the street and start a new business? Or what do you really got rolling around in your head that you want to do if you want to sell me your company but you won't sign a non-compete? Yeah, uh, you know, the way when you put it that way, Terry, it makes me think, oh, I'm looking for somebody to bail my chestnut out of the fire and give me money to just go do another one rather than slog it out with the one I have right now. Yep, yeah, and people have done that, you know. So uh, they're, they're, I'm, I'm an advocate for having a non-compete in there. You have to assign a value to it. Uh, that's another thing that the courts will look like if I – um, as the purchaser, give you the seller 
a non-compete, but the value of that non-compete was only a dollar, and it goes to court, the judge is probably going to say, well, you didn't think too much of that non-compete if you only charged a dollar for it, you know. <laughs> so um, they are important, and you as a seller should not be, in my mind, um, unwilling to sell to sign one, and if you are, then me as the buyer should be raising a red flag. Yeah, I would I would say so. I just wanted to address that issue because there are folks out there who have that concern. Well, I sign a, I sign a non-compete, and then if I try and do anything, even if it's a different business, they're going to come hanging us over my head saying, wait a minute, you have a non-compete. Yeah. So I would no, argue, that's... and tell me your thoughts because you're the, you're the subject matter expert here, is that clarity and specificity are two key things. So if you're going to hold somebody to a non-compete, I would say, you tell me, is it's important to itemize exactly what are the activities that this other person cannot engage in and for what period of time. So specifically, you cannot offer this product. Specifically, you cannot offer this service. Specifically, you cannot do this that performs that, and you cannot do it for three years so that when somebody does come over and say, wait a minute, what about the non-compete? They can pull it up and they can say, all right, well, I have the 13 things here that I agreed not to do for three years, and that is not even close to one of these bullet points. Oh, and that was four years ago, so too bad. Yeah, well, and I'm a good I'm a good example. Um, you know, I agreed to a seven-year non-compete. That is not the norm. So, listeners, that is not the norm. You, you may not get away with it. I, I didn't care. Uh, but within that seven-year time frame, I'd already started Innovative Business Advisors, completely different, co- you know, completely different company, um, right. completely legal within my non-compete. And was I going back and talking to my customers? Well, heck yeah, you know, I've three thousand customers and a lot of big companies. Sure, I wanted to go talk to them, you know. Um, so it's not. Uh, I mean, I had a, I sold my company to a six billion dollar company. They got lots of attorneys, so. Um, you know, so it should have been as strong as any non-compete out there, and I was still able to go start another business perfectly fine. And you were but able that's to why you approach see. some of your, yeah, and you're also able yeah. to approach some of your customers in the free use business because you're approaching them with something different. That's another point right. I wanted to raise is I, it's, I would also say it needs to be specified. Can you or can you not communicate or do business with your previous customers? Because you just raise a point that very rarely comes up in non-compete discussions that I've seen is, are you allowed to speak with these customers? And right. what often gets left out is, are you allowed to speak with them if you, you come to them with a completely different business? So let's say that today, Terry, you're in uh, pet grooming. So you sell your pet grooming business and you agree to a non-compete. Well, now you come back in business and you're selling lampshades. You mean you can't sell a lampshade to somebody whose cat you babysat? We got to no, you should absolutely anything. be able to. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I had several opportunities. I mean, I had people approach me wanting to sell insurance, wanted me to become a financial advisor, um, you know, different things. I could have done any of those things. I just couldn't go sell diesel fuel or grease or motor oil or, you know, anything that I sold with Tri-County, I couldn't sell them. But I was free to do whatever I want, you know, beyond that. So, well, great. I, I so, uh, really, you think of a question. Go ahead. Uh, you know, I think of a question about that. That's where you need to have legal advice. You know, get yourself, you know, 
you need to have an attorney help you go through these things. Right, right, right. And, you know, I, I want to say this has been one of our more interesting interviews for two reasons. Uh, number one, we've had a lot of guests on the Business Creators Radio Show here, and it's, it's only every so often we get somebody who is so passionate and so in-depth about their topic. I mean, all of our guests are absolutely wonderful. Um, everybody has their own style. Uh, you, Terry, are a style that we don't see very often, which is you have such a passionate connection to the intricacies of what you do. And this is what makes you, I believe, such a powerful advisor is you, those who have listened to the entire interview have heard a couple times where I was moving on to the next question and then you just kept going. And I caught on to that after a while and I said, all right, there's one more thing, one more thing. Is that it? Is there another thing? So, and when you're dealing with somebody and you're in a brain trust with them, just the conversation that goes back and forth causes ideas to emerge that you had not thought of just because you have the mastermind principle in full effect where each of you feeds from the power and that is emitted by the other. And it leads to innovations that are far greater than either one of you could have come up with on your own. That right there, if anybody uh, needs to explain to anybody or understand the mastermind principle in action, that's it right there. I agree hundred percent. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. That's and sometimes it. I'm when you're doing, yeah, and sometimes, <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you're doing it on a podcast episode it may sound i'm i'll be candid it might sound a little sloppy and it might sound a little uh discombobulated so if you've listened this far you may have had a couple what reactions to this episode but bear in mind that in an actual mastermind situation this is a sign that you are approaching a major breakthrough and if you're listening and taking to heart what terry lammers has shared with you today you may find yourself making a decision that it's time to move forward with something that you've been looking to do. Maybe you're in a business that really depends on you as the uh, source of your brilliance and your passion. It's really not something you can outsource, and you don't want to build a team around it because that's just inauthentic to you. So what you do is maybe you acquire another business that has an established structure that you can modify to your intentions. It comes with its own set of employees, its own set of customers, so you don't have to depend on you being personally involved with all of it. Or maybe you start a one-to-many enterprise. Or maybe you look at what other business you can start that can become a saleable asset. So you can keep on doing your bespoke web design, digital marketing, consulting, uh, house painting that only you can do and you're not going to build a team around and have other forms of income, other businesses that do give you the scalability. Uh, I see way too often that as business creators, we approach business as a zero-sum game. So you either have a bespoke business or you have a leverage business. So why does it have to be either or? Why can't it be and and both? Why can't you have both? You're supposed to have multiple streams of income anyway. So why not multiply and diversify? That's just my thought, and that's what little mini rants has been inspired by just some of the great things that Terry has shared with us today that have actually inspired me to uh, work on some things that we have going on here over at the Business Creators Institute right now. So for that, Terry, I want to thank you. And before we wrap up here, uh, for anybody who recognizes that Terry Lammers is somebody who really can help you when it comes to valuate, getting valuation for your business, looking at acquisitions and looking at selling, and 
determining what it is where you don't know what you don't know. Terry, how can somebody engage with you, and what do you have for our listeners to get started today? Uh, you can get a free copy of my book on Kindle. Um, just look up my name, Terry Lammers, or or you don't know what you don't know. Um, you can download it for free. Uh, it is also available on Amazon, so you can get it on Amazon. If you're looking for my contact information, I'm out there on LinkedIn. Um, the website for Innovative is www.innovativeboyapple.com. That's also my email address, Terry, at innovativeba.com. So feel free to reach out to me. Um, I appreciate being on the show. I hope I hope your listeners got something from it. And, um, hey, ask questions. You don't know what you don't know, right? Exactly. So uh, let me just point out Terry's website once again. It's innovativeba.com. And I want to thank you, Terry Lambert, for being with us today. It's been an honor and an education. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it very much. Have a great day. All right, for everybody listening, this is Adam Homie, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out your previous and upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com and on networks such as iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.